All right, so we are back for another week of the Art and Sports Podcast. I am still your host, Eddie Averill. They haven't fired me yet. So, last week uh, I talked to Griff about the NBA, what was going to happen. So let's talk about what happened. Week one, um, let's see, is it like every other year where everyone overreacts to everything and uses preseason as a barometer for some reason, so they're shocked when uh, things play out different than they expected? Yes, it was. Tuesday, uh, the Nuggets thumped the Lakers in a game that the score kind of made it look closer than it actually was, and it was kind of like that whole closest sweep ever thing, and I'm a Lakers fan saying that. It's, yeah, no. Don't, don't even don't even think about trying to make an excuse that that game was even remotely close. <laughs> uh, Wednesday, the Pacers put up 143, starting what might be a very low benchmark for highest uh, points scored against the Garbage Time Wizards. Thursday, uh, Sixers-Bucks was fun because Maxi looks fucking insane. Uh, Maxi has just been dominant all week. Uh, the the two or three games he played, he's just been just incredible. Uh, Friday, first SGA game that I watched, he looked insane around the rim. He put up, what was it, 40 points and only had two free throw attempts? I mean, I, I was talking about him being a potential foul merchant, but uh, the fact that he was able to do that with only uh, getting to the stripe twice was very impressive, but then it's like, hey, maybe you want to get to the stripe more because he played the Nuggets last night and they got just whooped, you know? What, what can you even say? The Nuggets, that that's the one thing you can actually bank on from week one. Yeah, the Nuggets are the best team in the league. It's not even close. None of the new East teams are even close. We'll see in three months how, how chemistry goes and, you know, if the Celtics really reach their potential. Uh, but even if they do, the Nuggets are better. They have the guy. They have Mr. Basketball. Um, Saturday, again, Maxi, just ridiculous. That That's my highlight for Saturday. <laughs> and yeah, Sunday, my, we're going back to Sixers. I don't want this to be a Sixers podcast because I fucking hate them. Uh, but I do live in Philly, so I feel like I just hear people talking so much and they, they're just so on my mind. Embiid was announced to rest last night for the Sixers home opener. Uh, then he ended up playing and having a big game, and they won. Uh, and by the way, Scoot Henderson, what, what's going on there? The assist-turnover ratio is looking like I'm playing out there. Uh, but regardless, uh, Embiid does play, and I feel like the whole narrative side of the Sixers is just going to be so exhausting this year, and Embiid is just going to be a little drama queen, uh, or actually a very big drama queen, and kind of upstage Harden. Uh, that's what it seems like, at least. I really hope I'm wrong. One more thing on the week in basketball. LeBron James versus Darvin Ham, a.k.a. Le Seal Team 6 versus Darvin Bin Laden. Um, Darvin Ham only plays LeBron 29 minutes in Game 1 where they get destroyed. I'm on Darvin's side there. LeBron is saying, put me in. I can play point guard. Dude, we we did this. We did this in the fucking playoffs. It doesn't work. Take the L. We're losing. Uh, then he plays 39 and 35 minutes in the, in the next couple games. And it's like, okay. So that was out the window. Uh, Le GM is back in the building, and he is taking out our terrorist head coach. Um, and, and that's the thing. Darvin is running some really bad rotations, but it's like, 
I, I am not Lakers spaces level on it yet. It's a team that's going to take a while to figure out what the right formula is. And it's going to be like last year. We don't have Russell Westbrook, but it's going to be like last year a little bit. Speaking of Russell Westbrook, Fool's Watch uh, MVP of the week, Russell Westbrook. He probably won this award 30 times over the last two seasons, but him taking that attempted game winner uh, with like four points on the night so far and airballing it, or I guess that would have been to tie it to send it to OT uh, against the Yaz. But yeah, that was fucking hilarious. And uh, Russ is going to Russ. A week ago, it was Sunday. And uh, you know who once said every day is like Sunday? Ole Morrissey. Yes, uh, 40 Years of Morrissey is the tour that is currently in New York. Well, I guess it just wrapped out of New York. And uh, I took the bus to New York from Philadelphia to see my old friend Stephen Morrissey. He put on such a great show. Uh, 40 Years of Morrissey is an apt tour name. Uh, He really did run through the catalog very quickly uh, with kind of the Smiths catalog just being treated as one thing. Uh, The the five or six Smith songs he did play leaned heavy toward the back end of the the discography, which, you know, not my favorite. I'm not not a big Strange Ways guy, Uh, but it's like you're seeing Morrissey do Girlfriend in a Coma. That's fucking sick. And him, you know, basically serenading me and my partner uh, singing, let me get what I want. You know, that was one of the most magical live music moments of my lifetime. And uh, yeah, so Morrissey is on the brain this week. David Fincher's The Killer came out. Uh, and I talked about that on the latest episode of Extended Clip, and the the main character in that exclusively listens to Morrissey, uh, or sorry, the main character in that exclusively listens to the Smiths. So it is apropos, it is only fitting that the main segment for the art end of the podcast this week is going to be me talking to my good friend Ethan Vestby about Morrissey's debut solo record, Viva Hate. Uh, after that, we are going to be bringing in Will Sennett. Yes, the funniest man online, Will Sennett. He will be coming on to talk about the Cincinnati Bengals because he is a Cincinnati sports fan for life. And I love Will Sennett. So that's that for this podcast. Uh, let's get right into it. So we are here with special guest, Ethan. If you've listened to Extended Clip, of course, you've heard him before, but new listeners, uh, this is your intro to my friend Ethan. And of course, I had to have Ethan on for Morrissey Week here on the Art and Sports Podcast. Uh, Welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you for having me on, Eddie. I'm always happy to, to talk about Morrissey. Of course, as uh, as I can see, uh, this is not a video podcast, but we are both wearing our Morrissey t-shirts right now, uh, supporting the best cause you can possibly support in the world right now, buying Morrissey merchandise. So, the reason for the season, uh, technically, we are I, I already talked about this a bit in a monologue, but 40 Years of Morrissey is the tour right now. 
Um, I, I talked a bit about how phenomenal that concert was, and I didn't really talk about two songs from the set list because they are from his first solo record, Viva Hate. So that is what we're here to talk about with Ethan. Uh, this is a record that came out, what, six months after Strange Ways Here We Come. Uh, it is like as immediate as I've seen of a guy leaving a band and just moving on right away, using the same producer as uh, Strange, Strange Ways Here We Come. But I don't know. To me, this one has always felt like a better record and a more progressive record than that one. It's almost like uh, Morrissey was half out the door for the last Smiths record. And then this one, he really comes into his own once again, almost a revitalization. Um, Ethan, so you, you've been a Morrissey fan for a long time. Has this record always been kind of one of the essential ones for you? I mean, say, I'd say it is. I mean, I, I came, uh, to Morrissey, like, I mean, like most people through the Smiths, mm-hmm. um, though I'll say, I guess in terms of my, my kind of path with Morrissey, I actually, the first Morrissey album I was really cognizant of was his 2009 album, Years of Refusal which you remember has the cover with him with his, his big gut out and holding the baby in his arm. Yeah. Holding a baby between the legs, weirdly like a, a pose you don't usually hit when you're holding a baby. Yeah. And I, I, I was just familiar with it because I was like reading pitchfork every day at this point in, uh, in grade 11. And I, you know, it was a, it, people were like, Oh, this Morrissey guy is important reading this. So I, I felt the need uh, to check in. And I remember listening buying meat is murder on cd cd at hmv loving it but also being really i mean obviously being in high school at the time it's it's very easy to emotionally relate to morrissey i think that's the point where you are supposed to listen to him really uh it's it'd be it's weird to kind of picture someone getting into morrissey when they're 40 or something but uh i have a specific memory of the final track of meet is murder the title track uh so to speak actually genuinely scaring me if you'll remember there's those sounds of like an actual um slaughterhouse in it and i remember it and genuinely terrified me and i actually was listening uh to this album again i found a little bit of an echo in the final track of this margaret on the guillotine where you hear the the clomp at the end of uh, that are presumably being beheaded and it, that oddly spooked me But yeah, I think this album has a lot of his greatest lyrics. And I would say, um, I mean, I don't know if we'll go track by track necessarily, but I'll say Every Day is Like Sunday is my, alt- even the Smiths uh, discography considered, I'd say Every Day Like Sunday, I think is his best song, period. Yeah, I mean, Every Day is Like Sunday is a epochal pop rock song, in my opinion. It's like echoes of... Uh, Eleanor Rigby and John Cale's Paris 1919 in the orchestration, uh, but of course with the you know post post punk post Manchester uh, highly emotional attitude and naked emotions of Morrissey, and uh, I it's also just like one of the meanest songs. You know, it's about being on vacation in a town that you hate. Basically, it's uh, it's essentially Kanye's "How You Gonna Be Mad on Vacation" line. Uh, but we'll get to that song. The record kicks off with Alsatian Cousin. (laughs) 
Now, this is a short, moody, tense track uh, about basically when your girlfriend catches you on some down low shit. Uh, like, I, it's, I mean, presumably it's about that. Um, I, I really love how noisy and like kind of ethereal whooshy the guitars are on this one. Steven Street's production is like, it's very dynamic on this record. And there's a couple tracks where. Uh, between him and Vinnie Riley, the guitar seems to be doing a little bit of a Johnny Marr impression, but I love how unique the guitar sounds on this one are, and as I said, the, the subject matter is so lustful and sad and great. Yeah, I mean, uh, actually, I mean, I... I'm 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 sure somewhere right now, like Morrissey is like in anger and sticking a, a pin in his Robert Smith uh, voodoo doll. But actually, it actually reminds me a lot of the a lot of the Cure albums mm. at the time. The sound, particularly um, disintegration, a lot of the tracks on that, but at least the more rock based tracks, the less synth based ones. Yeah, no, disintegration is definitely a good uh, comparison point for the production of really all the like I want to say like the darker sounding songs on this. Like when you're going for a uh, tense mood rather than ethereal beauty. I feel like you definitely hit a little bit of that disintegration feeling. Um, but yeah, this song, like the subject matter, for those who don't know, Morrissey's sexuality has always been like a... Uh, fluid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's fluid. There are fluids involved, but there weren't fluids involved for a long time. He's also celibate during his Smith's run, uh, or at least he said publicly that he was celibate. Uh, but I feel like this song kind of gets into the thing where it's like a lot of these micro little narratives, uh, these romantic and lusty narratives of this record, they feel like they could be based out of Morrissey's life, but often taking the perspective of another character in the story, where Morrissey is the guy who the protagonist of this song caught cheating on her with a guy you know uh, or even he's the guy that that guy was cheating on I, I i just feel like morrissey is almost detaching himself lyrically uh in order to like you know get into the the headspace of these other kind of characters in these songs and it makes the self-deprecation hit so much harder when he's essentially talking about himself in the third i like i actually kind of struggle to talk about music so thank you for having me on but I think I often say I sort of struggle to talk about music in terms of just on a, a technical basis. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of saying that this album has many of his greatest lyrics, and I agree with that. But this is actually one of the tracks on the album where I think of it musically before I think of it lyrically. Mm -hmm. Or something like, yeah, Every Day Like Sunday or Sweethead, I, I think of lyrically more than musically. Little Man What Now? I think that one, it's hard not to think about it lyrically. This is very uh, a very narrativized song. An afternoon nostalgia Television show. Uh, kind of about his obsession with mid-century British TV and cinema, I guess. Like, he was all into those kitchen sink dramas that I frankly can't get into, but I love how much he loves them. Um, and yeah, there's just like so many little poetic phrases, you know, uh, too old to be a child star, too young to take leads. It's about like an in-between weird part of a person's life where... They, you can't say that this this character he's talking about was an artist. He was kind of a young actor on soaps and stuff like that. Uh, but I feel like Morrissey's kind of fixation on these figures uh, brings more artistry to them. It's like there's all these like middling British drama movies that I would probably give two and a half stars on Letterboxd. But the fact that like uh, 
they are the the Bible for Morrissey. Like he got the line, I would go out tonight, but I haven't got a stitch to wear from one of those movies makes it like elevates the artistry of it so much. And I feel like this being like a, a song about his fixation on that type of TV and cinema is awesome. Yeah, I definitely think the BBC industrial complex was uh, shoving those movies down people's throats. Yeah. Uh, in terms of Morrissey's relationship to cinema, actually, I, I just remember this uh, this odd anecdote from his memoir, which I recommend anyone reading um, if you can. I, I'm going to, I think, read the final line of it, which is very heartbreaking later on. But I remember he has an anecdote where he's envisioning there being a movie made about the Smiths and who'd play them. And I just remember him saying Sean Hatosi would play him. <laughs> and I'm like, you remember Sean Hatosi, the fourth lead of the faculty? <laughs> it's so weird. I, I don't know if he was just really horny for Sean Hatosi, but... <laughs> I feel like that had to, had to do uh, with it for sure. But after Little Man, What Now? And I, I also want to go one more note on that. Like, I just love the uh, acoustic guitar on this. There, there's multiple tracks where the, the strumming of the acoustic guitar reminds me of a lot of uh, Bowie stuff, actually. Uh, and yeah, I, I just really like it as kind of a... I don't know. He's getting away from Johnny Marr and he's just like kind of expanding his musical palette with Stephen Street here. Even if there's a couple songs where Street and, uh, you know, Vinnie Riley are emulating Marr. I feel like this is one where it's like I, I really like him pushing the direction. But going back to that Smith style, we have Every Day is Like Sunday. This is a fucking anthemic song. This is like. I can't think of a Morrissey or Smith song where I want to sing the chorus when I hear it more than every day is like Sunday. As I said, it's the Kanye How You Gonna Be Mad on Vacation song. It's, you know, a seaside town that they forgot to tear down and he wants a nuclear bomb to take away this town because it's just so silent and gray, just like Sunday. And you think about like, if Sunday is silent and gray, that means you're not going to church and you're by yourself on Sundays, basically. Uh, Things where it's like Morrissey can just spit a couple lines out and you read so much into like his own personal struggles and his British identity and how he kind of gets away from it. Like, you know, all the other good lads are in church on Sunday, but he's just sulking in his room. Well, I really, I I really strongly associate the song with fall of 2015, particularly Mm -hmm. October, September, 2015. I was listening to this song on repeat while very depressed. I was like at a job where he's basically working like, six or seven days seven nights a week and i had like no social life and it was my first year living in toronto and i i just remember i'd come home from work and listen to that song and i remember i like you said i was uh singing aloud to it at one point without realizing my roommate was home so my roommate uh heard me at i don't know two in the morning just singing that song out loud that's great uh <laughs> Yeah, but it, it was the coastal town they forgot to close down is is one of those lyrics that always takes with me. I feel like I've seen a lot of films, actually, where that, that line comes to mind. I remember watching mm-hmm. the, the Fritz Lang film, Clash by Night, with uh, Barbara Stanwyck and, and Robert Ryan, which is basically set in a depressing seaside town. And I was I was thinking of that track throughout that film. Next is a problematic one uh, that I love, uh, Bengali. 
Now, this one, if you look at any review of this record, they're going to call this song racist or something like that, or like talk about how Morrissey's making a false equivalence between racism and like feeling bad for a guy or whatever. Um, but I, I, I'm going to take the optimist's read on this. I'm going to take the, uh, the generous read on this when, you know, him saying to shelve your Western plans and that it's hard enough to live where you belong is really moving to me. Uh, like he is such an outsider and it's such a song for outsiders that it's like, think of the most different culture that you can, uh, or if you see a person coming from a different culture, that's so different from your world, maybe you do want to be a part of that just because your world is so shit and so depressing that it's like, you just want to try the opposite thing. It's like, uh, you know, Wes Anderson's movie about going to India is like that, you know, it's like these three depressed brothers who are like, well, let's just fucking take a train to India. And I get the insensitivity there, but I also think that like uh, the the very basic notion of trying to get into a different world because the one that you live in has shut you out is very moving. Yeah, I love Hotel Chevalier. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, no, but yeah, I was talking about how this album has some of Morrissey's best lyrics. I'll say that, uh, yeah, life is hard enough when you belong here is one of my very favorites. And I think something that even sort of transcends the the subject matter being touched on. I actually wanted to bring up, um, I, I don't know if you, uh, any, if you watched the infamous Morrissey episode of the Simpsons from a few years ago. No, I actually didn't. I, uh, that, that depressed me just on site and I couldn't go through with it. Yeah, I watched it just this week to uh, to prepare a little. I mean, it wasn't very good, but it's also like it didn't seem particularly better or worse than any mm-hmm. like, you know, season 13, 14, 15 Simpsons that I watched as it aired. So it's like, okay. I don't know. I can't, I can't say the show is like completely uh, shit the bed, but I was I was rereading. If you remember, uh, Armin White wrote, wrote a great op-ed about this episode called the Simpsons tries to cancel Morrissey. And I'm just, I was just, I was just rereading it a bit. And (laughs) speaking of racism, I'm just kind of, uh, bemused as always by this passage from Armin's op-ed are the Simpsons colored yellow because the show is cowardly. It's one time edginess, just a relic from before the days of PC fascism. (laughs) Jesus Christ. This is uh this is before uh, Armin totally lost it. He also later uh later in the article says that uh the Simpsons has been eclipsed by its evil twin family guy and I think he's right. Well, I mean, I I wouldn't call it evil, but yeah, I I think that's pretty clear by the time Family Guy came around Simpsons was already kind of in the can. Um yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, just not to hijack this further, but I'll I'll say I've watched a lot of later period uh Family Guy and it's maintained its consistency far more impressively than the Simpsons. I'll say that. Yeah. I mean, I think the Simpsons, you may have not been generous enough to seasons like 12 through 14 ish. Like, I think those are okay, but like once it hits that 15 to 20 range, yeah, it's going to be like the worst TV show you can watch for 15 seasons in a row. Whereas family guy. Yeah. Obviously the peak is earlier, but I think late family guy has a pretty high floor. It's like the, the floor there is like a, two and a half star like it's fine it's family guy you know yeah well i think a bit sorry for anyone who didn't uh, sign up for this to want to hear about family guy but i think a bit of the difference is that with the simpsons i think they betray the characters a little where homer becomes Mm. too mean-spirited and stuff whereas just like they keep the pureness of peter throughout the show they really they really understand the characters on family guy 
And no matter what, you know, uh, cultural forces are pushing against them, you can keep the purity of Quagmire as well. (laughs) Yeah, he's a good man. He is a good man. He's misunderstood, frankly. And he's one of the more accepting characters on certain issues. But we'll we'll get to that on another episode. Um, And I think people can't be mad at this because anyone who uh, is brave enough to say that they love Morrissey in 2023 also loves Family Guy. So, Angel... Angel, we go down together. This is a very moody, very... Uh, it, it's kind of like the uh, Suicide is for Cowards song, uh, which is funny because it takes a very sensitive approach to it. This was supposedly the song written about Johnny Marr. I don't know too much background about this because like every source I look at kind of fizzles out after it says that. So you can imagine Johnny Marr had some sort of uh, suicidal tendencies or was in a very depressive period and Morrissey wrote this song about him or maybe about uh, a past part of his life I'm not sure do you know more about this Ethan uh I know uh, Morrissey like hates him <laughs> yeah. you know, Morrissey, <laughs> I mean I'm glad Johnny Mark could recover and uh co-compose the score for the amazing Spider-Man 2 with Hans Zimmer but um I, was, I didn't actually know this I was looking up uh, when will this be, be out by the way uh on this coming Tuesday on Halloween actually Okay, because uh, I'm doing a trivia night on Monday, and I came up with a trivia question. So this isn't spoiling anything, but I, I was doing—I did not know this—that the guitar line on "How Soon Is Now," the Smith song, inspired the X Files theme song. I had no idea. Yeah, the whistle in the X—that just sort of blew my mind and gave me a whole new appreciation for the genius of Johnny Marr. I mean, maybe some of the like later. I, I, I how far have you gotten into like kind of? We were talking about later period Family Guy. How how far have you gotten into like later period Morrissey? Later period Morrissey, I I pick my spots with it. I haven't like gone through all of it, but I love You Are the Quarry. Like of the two thousands records, that comeback one is one that I've like really dug into pretty deep, and I'm a huge fan of. But otherwise, I've kind of just scratched the surface on the late period stuff. Yeah, I haven't admittedly listened to everything, um, but I do. I do think a lot of it's pretty strong. Um, but oh, I yeah. do think maybe some of it is missing a bit of the is missing Johnny Marr. That's what it's it, some of it. Some of the albums overall aren't like could use a little more of a pop touch that sort mm-hmm. of Johnny Marr could bring. Though I'm, I'm going to quote Armin White again <laughs> on later period uh, Morrissey in his review of Tommaso by Abel Ferreira. <laughs> An overhead perspective of Tommaso crossing a street in the middle of traffic is filled out with street noises that immediately reminded me of a track on Morrissey's Ringleader of the Tormentors, an album featuring live ambient recordings in Rome. The coincidence reveals the nature of Ferrer and Defoe's semi-confessional conceit. Their movie is about self-awareness, the personal embarrassment over traditional ideas of sex and behavior and identity that recent cultural movements have unfairly and dishonestly condemned. Gadfly Morrissey again comes to mind for his recent song, The Secret of Music, in which, as with Ferrer and Defoe, discrete elements of art and creativity symbolize unsettled private feelings and the need to make sense of them. It's an ingenious reconstruction of the art-making process. I am out of tune, Morrissey sings, and that realization, in the age of toxic masculinity and its attendant dehumanization, is what Tommaso and Defoe's mercurial characterization press home. Like, I'm just reading this. I'm like, Armin's so washed now. He could still pull that shit out of his ass like yeah. three years ago. 
Yeah, I it it fell off really quick. It, it was really a ratio because like three years ago he's writing that stuff, and then the next article would be you know about how Nancy Pelosi is murdering people or something like that. Uh, and it's fine because it's like that was his ratio. It was like you get a good Armand review, and then you get two national review pieces that have Armand's name on them essentially. But now he's just washed. It's like you get one sentence a month basically from Armand that's good. I do just wish sometimes, I don't mean totally, I sometimes wish I had Armin's brain for being able to, for like being able to contextualize music and movies in that way. Yeah. Just having Morrissey constantly ring through your head, it sounds like a nice a nice way to live. No, I mean, I think he treats Morrissey's songbook like a Bible uh, more than any other person has ever done with like any uh, songbook like I feel like Armand's uh, integration of Morrissey lyrics into like whether he's reviewing Ferrara Godard or a Marvel movie is like ridiculous like he uh, he's just got the Moz brain and you gotta love the Moz brain um, Late Night Modern Street this is a beautiful track this is such a, a, a long uh, lugubrious track uh, Vinnie Riley's guitar on it is like very much bringing you back to the uh, the early Smiths kind of stuff, the Madchester scene. Uh, Vinnie Riley, of course, uh, known for playing guitar in the Derudi column, uh, or as the Derudi column. Uh, and uh, so it's like, you know, he's pushing forward the envelope with the musicality. I would say, like, Angel is, you know, he has this orchestration again, like on Sunday, and you have all these new forms of orchestration, newer late 80s drum sounds, but I really love how last night maudlin street just throws it back to early smith style uh ethereal jangly guitar and like uh short verses that take a long time to say because he's drawing out every word uh painfully and uh it's it's a beautiful song yeah i'd say this uh, alongside sweethead every night every day is like sunday and another track we'll talk about later that i think is really underrated they're all like basically his four best songs to me mm-hmm. the drum machine work is really beautiful but it's like enough about the aesthetics. You got to get down to what it is. And it's a song with so much regret and pain about love and, you know, not belonging. And you get the line laid on, uh, you know, he drove me back in the van complaining women only like me for my mind, which I don't know a single rock singer that would ever say the phrase women only like me for my mind other than Morrissey. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just like, it reminds me of I Know It's Over from The Queen Is Dead in the sense that like it's a softer song that's long and just lets you luxuriate in the sadness for as long as it possible. And the song's like six minutes, 45 seconds or something like that. It's like easily the longest track on the record and it needs to be. I, I think that the the feeling, the, the affect of the song all comes from like sinking into it and uh, the lyrics getting sadder and sadder until you get that women only like me for my mind line toward the end. Next track is Suedehead. That is the big hit. Uh, this and every day is like Sunday, of course. 
Uh, this was a bigger hit than any of the Smiths songs even at the time. Like this was a huge single. Uh, it kind of became the iconic Morrissey solo song. Uh, fans would call each other suede heads and everything. Uh, and it's a beautiful song. It's it's definitely like, uh, you know, going back to that Johnny Marr type jangly guitar. Uh, but it's just, I don't know. It's, uh, it's a song about being annoyed uh, at someone for like wanting to, you know, uh, push a relationship further than it needed to be where it needed to just be, as he said, a good lay. Uh, and I think Morrissey also might be the antagonist in this song. I feel like he's singing from the perspective of someone singing to him when you consider the celibacy angle of the Smiths. Uh, like he is such an emotive person and such a sensitive person that it almost seems like this song is someone singing to him like dude back off like it was a good lay we were good but like you're just coming around here making me uncomfortable like can't you just get it through your head that it was just sex uh and i feel like morrissey's you know emotionality over sensuality uh like puts me in that headspace of him you know being sung to rather than singing to someone in this song well this yeah i mean this is the song that probably uh also is representative of his uh kind of perpetual teenage mindset yeah it's it's interesting. I mean, talking about Morrissey, where I mean, this it's funny that the Simpsons episode I was talking about kind of makes this point where being like he's sort of our greatest hater, right, and our greatest mm-hmm. contrarian. But I mean, the Simpsons idea uh, pushes forth that this idea that, that I think a lot of people have said this about other specters of being a hater or contrarian that essentially being a contrarian uh, throughout your entire life just leads to being a fascist. It's <laughs> <which is> interesting, <laughs> but it's interesting that yeah, this. Um, so it has the lyrics, you had to sneak into my room just to read my diary. It was just to see, just to see all the things you know I'd written about you. So, I mean, again, he's really honed in on the teenage audience here. Mm-hmm. He is so, I mean, he's in his early 30s at this point. And I've, I found from my own experience that my the, the early 30s is when you kind of shed the hater mindset and kind of become more at peace at, with yourself. But <laughs> no, he's just so attuned with this kind of um, teenage mindset. He's never gotten mm. out over it, even despite being a genius. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I love this one. I also think uh, just like cutting himself off after, cu- like, why do you come here? Why do you come? Is a very, uh, like, obvious but sly double entendre for him. Uh, and I, I just think that, like, this song, it reminds me of You Handsome Devil, like, where he's, like, he has so much repressed sexuality because of his uh, intended celibacy, which also, I think his celibacy thing is just a pure hater thing. Like, he just, he hates the sexual aspect of 80s rock music, so he's going to pretend to be celibate or he's going to force himself to be celibate. I don't know. It, it plays into everything you want with Morrissey's mindset, his sexuality, his uh relationships and uh also just the the hook i mean the outro hook it was a good lay good lay like it's one of the catchiest things he's ever done uh i i have that ringing through my head all the fucking time it's it's phenomenal well i mean is to be a fan of morrissey to admit that you've at some point in your life flirted with loser mindset 
Absolutely. I think you have to even go beyond flirting with it. I think you have to have had the loser mindset. Uh, and that's why like, I didn't even like Morrissey when I was in high school. I thought everyone who liked the Smiths was a loser. And then when I got to college, I got into the Smiths and was like, what the fuck was I doing? Like, these guys are geniuses. Uh, <laughs> and like, uh, so I, I, I think that you have to you have to have a little bit of the evil in you for Morrissey to work. Uh, you have to have hurt people's feelings. You have to have felt like the world was against you when in fact the world was just existing outside of you. Uh, and you have to have had these awful pent up repressed uh, feelings to really get into the Morrissey mindset. Uh, later Morrissey mindset, I feel like is more cultural than sensual, but he still does have a little bit of that. Uh, like you can see him at 60 still having a diamond. Break up the family. I want to see all my friends tonight. It wasn't you, it wasn't this is great. It is also the production on this is the weak spot on the record for me. I think it's like kind of dreadfully 80s in a way that's like those drums should have been out the window five years ago, kind of. Uh, and it reminds me of like, um, the Smiths self-titled and going forward to you are the quarry where there are certain points where like anyone Morrissey is a victim of time where it's like the thing is it's just going to be of its time no matter what uh the Smiths self-titled I think is a great record but I much prefer all the Hatful of Hollow versions of those songs. And it's because of production. I don't like that early 80s production. I think they're much more wide open and less canned on Hatful of Hollow. And then you go forward to You Are the Quarry. There's songs that sound like they were produced by Jack White. You know, it's like, ah, boy, this is like some real 2000s K-Rock shit. Uh, and it's like, I still love the record, but there are certain instances of the production that give it away as uh, a piece of its own time too much. And I feel like the production on Don't Break Up the Family is that, but the songwriting is genius. I, I mean, it's just, it's, it's so good. And it's so like, it's funny coming from the almost minimal lyrical approach of Suedehead, just a few phrases repeated to the almost more like, uh, I don't know, literate, uh, break up the family. I mean, yeah, he's saying abolish the family, comrade Maz. Yeah. Am I right? Um, <laughs> also teenage mindset, playtime, always abolish getting in trouble. I mean, I, I was, yeah, I mean, I guess you found love, but we're at peace with your life is one of my, my favorite <laughs> see, uh, hater lines. You know, uh, it's the heaven knows I'm miserable now thing. He's talked about it with employment and he's talked about it with love. And it's like, you can find the thing that you've looked for, but you're still going to be miserable whether you're looking for a love or a job. Uh, and I've been in both of those camps. I get it. The next one is, well, it's technically uh, The Ordinary Boys is usually the uh, ninth track, but was re-released, uh, like on the re-release version, uh, was changed to the demo of Treat Me Like a Human Being. Uh, apparently this was a copyright thing. And also just like, I don't know, I was looking into this reissue and, Pitchfork gave this album a seven on reissue, and I guess it was because like it didn't have enough good bonus features. <laughs> uh, like 2012, 13. 
Yeah. Also, speaking of the reissue, have you seen the reissue cover? The the 97 re-release cover? It's a white background with a picture. It's just a new portrait of Morrissey from 97. Uh, and it's like very trashy. It looks like it could be a Justin Timberlake like single artwork or something like that. Uh, but I like it. I, I, I like it as like, a, oh, this is Morrissey in the late 90s now. Oh, I'm glad to see he was still he could still be a thought up, up until that point. <laughs> Um, hey, he's still a thought today. I uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and he keeps uh, he keeps eating those veggie sand, those grilled cheeses or whatever you know those veggie grilled cheeses. He's gonna turn into a pog too. I, but, I, was, uh, I was gonna say, sorry, maybe you, you brought this up earlier, but did did when you saw him perform, did he do the thing where he ripped open his shirt to expose his gut? <laughs> he did, but like you could barely see it. But also, I think the better version of that is like so he's wearing the button down with like three buttons open and you know tugging at it throughout the set but then when he comes back for the encore he's just wearing his own merch like he just comes out with the morrissey shirt that they were selling uh like a a small just like really tight around him and it was one of the funnier looks i've seen for sure i remember seeing a video of him i think it was from like 2019 or 2018 performing at the hollywood bowl and he's Mm -hmm. doing um how soon is now and he's wearing a just this tank top that says fuck the guardian and he's just kind of waddling around the stage and people keep running up at point to hug it i know that's a big thing at his concerts people yeah. run up on the stage to hug him and he kind of half-heartedly hugs them back before security pulls them off and then just kind of half-heartedly at the end he just tears open his tank top exposes guy i need to like i'm so mad he's not doing a toronto show i have to see this before i die yeah, the 40 years of Ma's set was incredible. I mean, uh, listeners already heard me talk about it, but to tell you, Ethan, it was just, I mean, it's a perfect encapsulation of the last 40 years. It's a little bit of everything. It's like he never plays more than two songs from any particular album. Yeah, yeah I also don't know if you've seen his 2015 Larry King performance. Yeah, that one, uh, his, <laughs> there's something about the studio lighting on that one that, not the most flattering. Uh, but. He just looks in pain the whole time. He's wearing this thing that weighs a lot. And, yeah. And he, he, when he's performing his song, Kiss Me A Lot, which is one of his better late period songs, but he just seems, yeah, he looks actively in agony. He's like performing. <laughs> uh, but The Ordinary Boys is, you know, it's kind of like the uh, the Repo Man, ordinary fucking people, I hate them line until the very end when he says they're so lucky. Uh, and, and I love that because it's like, it almost feels like that fucking uh, pop punk ass, like we got to leave this town, you know, kind of thing, like all these ordinary people. And it's, you know, Morrissey's the godfather of all of those people. As much as I make fun of pop punkers, uh, like all of them loved the Smiths when they were growing up, you know, Uh, or they loved bands that loved the Smiths growing up. Um, But so I, I, I really love this as like, a very sly like pulling the rug out from under you version of that trope it's like talking about how no no one in comfy suburban uh like life knows how good they have it basically they're going to be miserable and say that everyone's ordinary and doing the same things every day uh but they're lucky because they're comfortable and they have a good life basically uh musically very fun song too yeah what's our next one is it i don't mind if you forget me Yes, it is. Uh, Your best wishes, they make me suspicious. What a line. 
That's that's one of my favorite. That's like a t-shirt line right there. I love it. I mean, this is the one of the the greatest kind of just passive aggressive songs of all time. Yes. It's like, the, it's like the exact thing. Yeah. Again, you listen to when you're like 18, 19, 20 and just at peak loser mindset, essentially. <laughs> Absolutely. If the form is loser mindset, teenage angst, Morrissey is like fucking Van Gogh. Like he's perfected the form. He's John Ford. He's whoever you want to say is a master of the form. Like he's been doing it for so long. He's going to he's going to have a diary that he's scared someone is going to sneak into his room and read when he's 90, you know. Um, and that's part of what makes Morrissey so good, uh, especially with when you look at the maturation uh, and you look at him looking back at youth and loser mindset, like in our next song, Dial a Cliche. This is an unbelievable song. This is a song about young Morrissey being a, a fey little boy and uh, his dad telling him to grow up and be a man. And it's a little bit of like a Lou Reed, my old man is basically the same exact song as this. And it's one of my favorite subgenres of rock music. Uh, the, the daddy issue origin story kind of thing. Um, it's fantastic. I mean, uh, for those who don't know the phrasing, because dialing doesn't mean anything in the 21st century, uh, there used to be services like dial a joke. You know, you, you punch in a phone number, you let it ring, and then someone picks up and tells you a joke. And it's like, well, that's stupid. Uh, so the, the concept of this is that essentially his father's advice comes from a dial a cliche operator. And it's it's the idea that Typical masculinity has run its course and that fathers need to find new ways to raise their sons, essentially. Uh, and that like telling your boy to sh shut his, uh, sh close his mealy mouth and scrap his fey ways isn't going to do any good. That boy ain't right, I'll tell you. What? <laughs> and maybe he was, maybe Morrissey's dad was right. Maybe that boy wasn't right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. That's the thing is like he's looking back and he's criticizing, but he's also, I think, clearly seeing how oversensitive he was as a kid. And like a little bit, you have to realize, well, dad did kind of know what's best. Like he, the approach was wrong, but like you, you got to know your dad was a little bit right there. Uh, then we get into the final track, the most controversial track, Margaret on the Guillotine. If this was released uh, like last year or something, it would be like a, it, or in the last few years, it would be like if Taylor Swift uh, made a song called like, Donald Trump, you're officially an orange man. <laughs> and I'm well, going to kill well, you. Well, remember, it's, I think it's actually more the equivalent of Kathy Griffin holding up that fake uh, head of Donald Trump. <laughs> oh, yeah. Jesus. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I was kind of saying earlier, uh, this track kind of fills the same slot that the title track of Meet is Murder does. Yeah, no, totally. It's it's definitely the most of a public statement about the world and not like small personal relationships. And it's basically just saying, hey, everyone in England wants to see Margaret Thatcher die and they want to see her die brutally by the guillotine because her reign of terror reminds us of what we learn in history class about like the French uh, rulers and stuff like that. So we got to bring back the guillotine for her and uh, very simple lyrics. Uh, very downbeat and uh, reminds me, it reminds me of Mita's murder. It also reminds me of like, um, let me get what I want or back to the old house, kind of some of the older ballads where it's like the subject matter is going to be a lot darker than the ballad presentation. 
Now, fill me in. Has Morrissey like addressed this song in recent years? Is he had a heel turn? <laughs> no, Meg Keith Hatcher. I don't think so. I know that he had some bad words for the PM that had that pig scandal, of course. Uh, so, so of course, he's always done that. And, you know, it's hard to talk about Morrissey without talking about some of his public statements. Uh, you know, look. The guy just loves animals, and sometimes he loves animals so much that he puts down a race of people because of uh, the way they eat animals, and he's just, I don't really know what, I have no defense for it, (laughs) but uh, Margaret on the guillotine, what a way to end it. I mean, if you're looking at Morrissey as like uh, English identity, you know, it's like, it's this song, it's it's, uh, Irish blood, English heart, you know, and a few others, and it's like a really great it reminds me of mark um margaret smith mark e smith of the fall uh in the kind of um owning up to being british but also hating being british kind of uh, dynamic that he's running with here and i i just think it's a fantastic song and uh you know the the outrage at the time is so funny now because of the way people treat you know leaders now and I, that's that's me really getting on my arm and shit is like uh <laughs> If Taylor Swift said she was going to kill Joe Biden, what would you say? You know, like, or what was it like when after Trump was elected, and Alex Jones was like, "Oh, you got to got to respect the sanctity of the office. It's a tough job." <laughs> um, any final thoughts on Margaret on the guillotine and in general, Viva hate Ethan? I'll just say it is crazy that Margaret Thatcher was prime minister for eleven years. That, that be- is that is insane. That. That feels way too long and also too short the way people talk about it. <laughs> well, I uh, I said that I wanted to read uh, the final passage from Morrissey's uh, self-titled memoir published in 2014, controversially by Penguin Classics. It's a great book if you haven't. So again, this is just the final uh, passage and I think it sort of sums up him, you know, from back in the 80s to, to nowadays too. As I board the tour bus, a fired encore is still ringing in my ears, and then suddenly a separated female voice calls out to me, full of cracked now-or-never embarrassment above the still Illinois winter atmosphere of midnight, and it was dark, and I looked the other way. Wow. That is fantastic and a great way to end here. Ethan, thank you so much for coming on the Art and Sports Podcast, talking Moz. Um, anything you want to promote for the people, they can uh, read your writing and see other things you do on the internet? Uh, I'll just say, uh, this is coming at Halloween, so November 2nd at the Review Cinema, will be uh, my, my programming series Bleeding Edge will be uh, hosting the Toronto premiere of Nate Wilson's film The All Golden, which has had its world premiere at Fantastic Fest a couple months ago. Um, it's a really insane movie. It's what micro-budget movies should do, what they can do, and this, I think, shows a new way going forward tickets are like already over 75 percent sold out so uh if you haven't gotten a ticket yet please do just like check my twitter check the review website if you want to get one yeah if you're in toronto and you don't know about the bleeding edge films uh like screening series fucking get on that shit uh ethan randy they're they're doing the most out there they're they're killing it uh i can't wait to go back to toronto soon and go to one of those screenings so Thank you for coming on, Ethan. Oh, yeah, thank you for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Of course. So we're back here on the Art and Sports podcast. Uh, you know, NFL Week 8 was a lot of fun. A lot of highs, a lot of lows. 
Uh, personally, I did quite well. I, I, I'm on like a, I was on a four game losing streak in fantasy and came right back. Uh, three and one with a push in my bets. Don't tell uh, anyone who cares about me uh, that I'm still betting. And, uh, you know, it, it, but most importantly, the Bengals are back. The, the Bengals uh, were plus four against the 49ers, which is one of the bets I won, of course, because I knew they were back this week. I, I, I When I told Will, I want you to come on after the Bengals game, I knew it was because the Bengals were going to beat the 49ers. And I want a happy Will. Last time we recorded, it was hours after the Cavs got bounced from the NBA playoffs. Uh, I, I want to counter that with bringing Will on after Joe Cool swags it out, Jamar does a flip, and they beat one of the top five teams in the league what's up will senate i got my ass in the water toes in the sand dude i feel i feel like a million damn dollars <laughs> thank you for coming on the pod brother it is always nice to chat with you of course dude no uh glad to be here i was i was not as confident as you i was worried i was going to come in here and really just and be a prince <laughs> of darkness uh i'm on your podcast but i'm glad i'm glad i can come in here with with my with my with a smile on my face you know so, so take us through the first few, not even first few, we're like halfway through the season. Take us through yeah. the, the emotional roller coaster of a Bengals fan for the last couple months here since the season started. I mean, not fun. It's never fun. <laughs> even when we're good, it's always a rock fight. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, always, it's always bloody and muddy and, and disgusting. Um, but this year especially was rough because you know the calf joe's calf obviously we didn't really know the extent of it you know coming into week one everybody's like he's good he's fine then clearly that was not the case and that was coming off of i mean coming off the rogers injury you know yeah achilles stuff i mean that was like like you know i would have i was have nightmares about you know something like that happening to Mm -hmm. joe so it felt like we were rushing him back and then you know worse offense in the league couldn't run the ball um yeah, I mean, times were dark. And then there's that, you know, we have that bullshit every year. It's like, oh, we, you know, hey, the Bengals start slow every year, you know, no, nothing yeah. to worry about. But it's like, you know, wouldn't it be great if we didn't start slow <laughs> just once? Wouldn't it be great if we were ready to go? Especially with their like week nine through 15 schedule being Brutal. a fucking gauntlet. Like oh that God, is dude. tough. Like that's, that's the main reason why I thought this game was going to be so important is because like when I looked at that at the moment, I thought, well, the 49ers are the best team they're playing on this stretch. So they need to like really show out in this game. Now I'm less confident that the 49ers are the best team of that bunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, yeah, th- this was huge for like turning the season around at the midpoint because they're going into a tough part of the schedule. Yeah, I mean, you know, go- going into this week's game, it was just like, if we're good, we will win. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, this was the ultimate kind of prove it week, best week, one of the best teams in the league, coming off our bye week, like fully dialed Joe's as healthy as, he- as he's going to be. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, we if we're going to do it, we have to do it. And, and, boy-, and boy, did we. <laughs> All right. What I want to do is turn back the clock a little because we're not we're not football experts here. We're not going to be breaking down tape talking about DBOA and EPA. No, we're not doing shit. the all like, twenty two on this pod. No, sir. 
No, I mean, like, look, when, when I talk basketball, I'm going to talk more numbers. Football is a sport that is, to me, about fucking gooning on Sundays. And Absolutely. that's like a tradition. It's like a American tradition of just like you're watching for seven to ten hours pretty much every Sunday. And it's a way to mark time. You remember quarterbacks. You remember plays. So I want to go through some memories that I have that are tangentially related to the Bengals. There's going to be highs and there's going to be lows. All Mostly right? lows, I would assume. I'm in my dad's bedroom uh, for some reason. I don't know why I'm not in the living room, but I'm in my dad's bedroom watching uh, Saturday divisional football don't playoffs. Don't do this to me. Eddie, don't do this to me. <laughs> Carson Palmer. I mean, oh, I liked fuck. him because I was a, I was a young usc football fan the way that like a lot of people i know right now are talking about like you know when i was young i was brainwashed into zionism and (laughs) birthright uh when i was young my best friend's dad was a usc alum and a big football fan so like i was brainwashed into being a big usc fan uh like i went to fucking ucla for grad school and i still am like you know caleb williams could turn it around oh my god dude shame on you I, I was like I was in on Palmer as like a nine year old. <laughs> like I was like I like where that guy went to college, you know. Uh, but so I remember watching that in my dad's bedroom. Do you remember where you were for that? Yeah, I was in um I was in the big sports bar in town. Uh, it was called mm. Willie's, uh, and just you know dog shit. You know, it smells yeah. like cigarettes. It's disgusting. The food. Oh, you're sucks in dick. Cincy at this point. I'm in Cincy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm I'm a young man because this was what oh four. I, I believe so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. four. So, yeah, I would have been about seven or eight. And, um, yeah, it was the first time. It was the first time we were good my whole life. You know, we just we yeah. just drafted Palmer. Um, you know, we did the thing his rookie year where we sat him the whole year, which I think is a great idea. I think it, it usually it tends to work out, but also it's hard to, you know, when you suck dick enough yeah. to get the first pick. <laughs> those fans need they don't want to they don't want to see another year of John Kitna. Which is yeah. what, which is what we got. But um, yeah, it was we were just dialed in, we were clicking, and it was just an exciting time to be a Cincinnati sports fan. <laughs> and then it wasn't very quickly. It yeah. wasn't. <laughs> and then yeah. it wasn't. Yeah. And then it was all over very fast. Now moving on to a more uh, hot, I don't know volatile uh, up and down memory of them, Chad Ochocinco. Do you remember the name change? Do you remember oh, yeah. how you felt about him? Were you like in for everything? Because oh. I didn't even like the Bengals and I was in for all of the antics. Oh, he was. I mean, he was amazing. Yeah, of course. Like he was just he was just a fucking goober. You know what I mean? Like yeah. a, like like a, just a, a silly guy who was also ran perfect routes. And I feel like I feel like people remember the antics more than like at his peak. There was five years where he was what top three receiver in the league. Yeah, there was a point where it's like him and Fitz were both being wasted on the worst possible fucking teams. Like yeah. two of the three best receivers, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I was all in on Chad. Everything he did was so funny. You know, there was never there was never any hate behind it. You know, he just wanted the he just wanted to, he's a showman. You know, mm-hmm. and we're starting to see that he's in every commercial now. You know, he's starting to pick up a little steam. No, he's uh, he's uh, he's a proud son of Cincinnati, and we will love him forever. Yeah, no, I I think he was like one of my favorite players growing up, just because like he was one of the first guys I saw actively piss off guys like my dad, and yep. I was like, oh, that rules. Like <laughs> my dad, who will say stuff like, uh, still he'll name all the quarterbacks, but he'll still say, I don't like that Chiefs quarterback. 
Like he won't <laughs> he won't even name him. Why? Because he's too flashy. Because he because with the, like with the sidearm. Yeah, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. he is not a fan of the style. He's like, I like that Bills quarterback. You know, uh, since he's got a good guy, I love Burrow, love Allen, but I don't like that Chiefs quarterback. Yeah, I wonder if there's is there any, is there any other differences between the quarterbacks you named and Patrick Mahomes that could possibly be influencing that? <laughs> trying to think if he was a big Mike Vick guy or not. Uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a, there was a time where it's hard to be a big Mike Vick guy. So. Yeah, that's another one. I, I actually, it's so weird. I never lived at my dad's house, but I'm flashing back to these memories. I was at his house when the Michael Vick story broke on Sports Center. I just remember being on his couch, and I was like. A guy who had a, I was, I had a Falcons Vic jersey as like a twelve-year-old dog lover, and that was very hard for me. <laughs> uh, dude, the funniest thing I remember my my grandma. She grew up on like like dirt poor in like Kentucky on like like a farm and like and like she never really thought of dogs as even like the dogs weren't like above cows to her. You know what I mean? Like yeah. she just like grew up like you know surrounded by dogs. They're always dying, always killing each other. She never thought about it. And like I remember like. Her being like, who cares? They're dogs. <laughs> and like, my dad was like, no, but like, and she's like, yeah, but no, but like, they're dogs. Who fucking gives a shit? It was so, she couldn't wrap her head around like, why that would piss people off. It was so funny. That's so fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> who cares? Side note, do you think the uh, we treated Michael Vick too harsh train has gone too far? Because that's kind of ridiculous to me. He's like just back in it. Like I get that he's done the rehabilitation process, but like, and I love the guy. But I was watching that John Boy's Falcons thing, and the way he talks about how the media treated Vic, it's like, yeah, but he did kill all those dogs, right? Like, yeah, it's tough because it's like, but you, you know, I mean, Ray Lewis killed a man. Yeah, that's you know true. what I mean. Ray Lewis did did actually kill a guy, and he's you know he's on your TV twenty four seven. So it's like that's true in, in a vacuum. What he did was so messed up, but I mean, guys have gotten literally away with murder. So it's, it's that's and, another thing that uh, the old, old Mister Averill told me. Uh, one of the very first facts I knew about any NFL player is that he killed a man. That he was a murderer. <laughs> I feel like that was like a big, like you know, like dad with like a or like a, an older man with like a younger child being like, "Hey, get yeah. over here! You see that guy? Yeah, killed a guy." Like you know, it was like a fun little a fun little thing to tell a child. Now you want to be a linebacker, you got to be like Erlocker, you know. That's yeah, the yeah. who, by the way, was a fucking psycho. Dude, Have you seen those beast. videos of him in practice, just like wrecking his teammates, and his teammates are just like, "Dude, stop!" Like, yeah, can you relax for one second? I love that. I love like like the like the fully embracing the psycho thing so much that like yeah. you piss off your friend. <laughs> you know, you're trying to hurt your boys who like you need to be healthy. Yeah. So good. Oh, man. Um, so back to the Bengals this season, though. Uh, yeah, this game was awesome. It was like right from the fucking start. Uh, first of all, Brock Purdy wasn't supposed to start and then started no. like it was questionable. And then the concussion stuff. I, you know, I, I'm calling it on the the Simmons reverse jinx, which is a classic uh, thing that happens throughout uh, my life is just you got to fade Simmons no matter you what he's saying. Simmons, so if, if Simmons is saying Purdy's not going to play, he's probably going to play, you know, and that was me not remembering that. Uh, but regardless, 
in the first quarter alone, it was like, oh, this is the busiest their offense has been all year. This is ridiculous. This is like, and I'm a, I'm a mix in fantasy guy too, which Ooh. weirdly I've drafted him twice in the last three years. And usually I'm not happy with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so Mixon just went off right away. It, it was like huge for me in that respect. If <laughs> it then uh, the second Burrow hit that run on third and nine, I was just like, he's oh. back, dude. He's fucking he he went full sprint from like the the second his foot planted on the last step of the drop back, just mm-hmm. used that to catapult himself at a full sprint. And I was like, oh, he is back to being like a top three quarterback. If like at the lowest, <laughs> like yeah. when he's going, he's at the top of the league. Because that's what you like. When he's not doing that, it's easy yeah. to forget that like that's like his his superpower is that like yeah. he's like a dark wizard back there in terms <laughs> of like escapability. Sometimes you know, like he had that yeah. one play where you know he was he was sacked and then he, and then he ran out and hit T for a first down. It's like oh yeah, that's what separates him from most guys. You know, he just it's it, it's not like an intangible thing. You know, it's like not something that like you that you that shows up in like, you know, the draft process or anything, but some guys just have like an innate ability to just like feel pressure, Mm -hmm. escape pressure. And then as they're escaping it, know what to do, you know, like you saw, I was watching like Zach Wilson play yesterday who, you know, God bless that poor, truly God bless that poor boy. It's gotten to the point where I'm like rooting for him. Like as like, I think it's cause like, as like a, also like a white guy who's like not living up to his potential at all. And everybody's pissed off at him all the time. He's sort of a kindred spirit. And it's like, you, he would just like, you know, you, he, the second he feels pressure, he scrambles. And like, there's moments where he gets away, but you could tell he does not know what to do. No, you know, yeah. he doesn't know where to put his eyes. He doesn't know, you know, he doesn't feel, he doesn't have the feel that, you know, guys like Joe have that, that, that really, you know, separates him. But I mean, yesterday was such a, a boon for, to watch because it was like all year, you know, we were hamstrung by the calf and injury a lot. But part of the thing that's like kind of been frustrating over the last few years is, we have all these weapons and it's just like a, a lack of creative play calling is really hard to watch, especially with this team. Mm-hmm. And you see teams like, you know, you see teams like the fucking Dolphins. They're doing Going fucking crazy. Yeah. They're doing fucking schoolyard bullshit, taking plays <laughs> from, you know, like the 1983 army team. Yeah, I was going to say Dolphins are playing like the way I used to play NCAA football 10. Like, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, when you're, you're playing against rookie mode and you're scoring 94 points a game. <laughs> But, you know, yesterday was like the first day. It's like, okay, scheming Jamar open. We're, we're really figuring out that like, because, you know, you know, when he first came in the league, explosion, take the top off. You know, holy crap, we've never seen anything like that. But like, he really does. Like, his, just his build and his ability to get upfield is like, he could be like, he could be a, a receptions receiver. You know what I mean? He could just be a guy who gets you nine yards at a time if like that's what the defense is giving you. And especially with, you know cover too high don't get me hey don't get me started on that but if that's what you know if that's what's going to happen he can be the guy who's getting you you know he had 11 receptions for 100 yards he can do that every game yeah no i mean it's i guess it's game to game where uh they're going to scheme for more receptions versus the big chunks and everything but it looked like i mean hey you're going against supposedly one of the better defenses in the league right now and kind of lighting them up, especially in that first quarter. And they are one of the better defenses in the league. They adjusted. They were very quiet. They quieted the Bengals down for two quarters straight. It was like, oh, uh, this is 
getting ugly now. Uh, but then, like, right at the end of the third or beginning of the fourth, you get that fucking turdy pick, uh, <laughs> followed by the Jamar touchdown. And mm. it's just like, oh, the fourth quarter is going to be awesome. And, like, uh, you know, you get a little more purdy Kittle magic because Kittle's just ridiculous. And, you know, it, the Niners are that good. That's the thing. It's not like they didn't show up today, they are that good. And so 24-17 with eight minutes left, it's like, oh, this is going to be game of the year right here. This should, this could end up being the craziest thing ever. Uh, but instead... <laughs> you just march it down the field. You take all the time you want, and you're not going to get a good two-minute drill from Purdy. Like, it's that's not going to happen at all. He gets two chances. He gets the pick that gets brought back and then the strip sack. Uh, but that was just excellent clock management. And uh, that proves that Cincy is going to be a team to reckon with. I think that, that 24-17, eight minutes left, that they didn't let it become a San Francisco heroics game. Not that they're ever a from behind team. That's not how they win. But like the fact that they were able to just milk clock and yep. really seal that off uh, and put San Francisco to bed like that gave me as much confidence like in the Bengals as you can possibly have for a team of their record right now. Yeah. Um, and something I've been sitting on and uh, I hope I, I hope I don't get myself in trouble by saying this, but uh, Irv Smith needs to die, dude. Irv Smith. <laughs> Needs to fucking die. I I have so much hate in my heart for that man. It is. I let I let I let these fucking Bengals fans. I let them talk me out of wanting to list best tight end draft of our lifetime. Yeah, five maybe yeah. six absolute stone cold studs that you could get late in the first round. And I I let these people talk me into. Oh, you know, tight end's not a high value position for us. You know, we could take any replacement level tight end and, and make him. You know, blah 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 blah. We could we turn Hayden Hurst into blah. Suck suck my god, suck my dick, dude. Irv Smith, what a fucking waste. What an absolute fucking waste. On the one we march down the field right before half, we could turn this into a fucking blowout. And 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 that fucking idiot. That 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 human piece of garbage has the fucking has the chutzpah to fumble my my football. He fumbled my football on the goddamn one yard line. Unbelievable! What is he doing? You know, for all the optimism, we had to get a little angry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is yeah, a sports sorry. show after all. Yeah, uh, yeah. That- <laughs> oh. Hey, I, I I'm with you. I you know let it out as it were. Um, But in terms of Bengals optimism, yeah, it's like you jump 10 spots in offensive rating from that one game. It's like they're Mm -hmm. up to, I think they're up to 19th or 20th now. Uh, And it's like things are going to turn around. I, you know, if you're a better, I bet the odds already moved a lot. So too late. Um, But uh, I got them at it. Hey, I'm one of the only ones that took the over. I think they might pull it out still. They they didn't pull out that over yet. You know, I mean, listen, we have a tough schedule. You know, I mean, the, the divisions, the divisions shaping up to be, mm-hmm. as usual, a fucking bloodbath. You know, the Ravens yeah. look like, you know, Ravens are a wagon. You know, the Steelers, you know, are miraculously finding ways to, to win despite having, despite having basically you or me at quarterback. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the Browns, they're playing with dark magic, the likes of which that we, that we aren't even, you know, they made, they made a deal with with somebody and and you know they they made a deal with harvey weinstein they like they (laughs) (laughs) uh did you watch so you saw zach wilson you were saying so you watched the end of that giants jets game insane day ball 
best headset thrower in the game. Like it's when the game's over and he just he's just done. I he's just so done with it. I it's fucking incredible. He has like the vibe of like a, a stressed out JV coach. You know, <laughs> yes. who's like he's like, oh sh-. he's like, I'm I, I, I run like a lawn mowing company during the day, and now I have to deal with all of these fucking idiot kids just ruining my life every Saturday. You know, it's like yeah. And it's just like, I just like, yeah, he's just like a guy who's like not in control of his emotions. He has like a, a Chip Kelly vibe. If you remember like Chip Kelly oh, on yeah. the sidelines, just having a conniption constantly. Chip Kelly's conniption fits were the best because he's like the jolly fat guy you see at the mall. So like he, his conniption fits were like when the guy spills mustard on his pants, you know? <laughs> yeah. But it's just, and you know, for, for all, you know, for all of the Zach uh, hatred that especially me has put out in the world. He is he is truly a beacon of calm kind of on the yes. sideline. And I really do think that is what you need from a head coach more than anything. It's just a guy who like won't freak out and scare everybody. <laughs> yeah, no, S- Sala's reactions to Zach Wilson's ridiculousness is very funny. Uh, Dude, he is he is doing a great because you could every time they cut over, you could see him physically like stop himself from not rolling his eyes. You know, like you could see him. I think he, I feel like he has like a needle in one of his arms that he like jabs himself with whenever he feels the camera on him to remind himself not to just like, like, like fall into himself when Zach underthrows a third and eight by four fucking yards, you know? Um, I also can't wait to see Tommy DeVito try to throw it more than 10 yards. That's going to be awesome. <laughs> Dude, that was cra- like in overtime. I was like th- that drive they had. They did three straight passes behind the line yeah. of scrimmage. And I was like. <laughs> They think this kid can't do anything, yeah. man. <laughs> Which is really scary because that's like, if you fuck that up, the, that's going the other way for six. But it's almost like when you're really close to rage quitting in a game and it's like, well, you know what? If they run it back for six, fucking fine. Game over. Fine, you know? whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Will, thank you so much for coming on the pod. Hope to have you on again sometime. Yeah, I'm going to come back. back. We're going to talk calves. We're going to get in there. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, I'm going to uh, Sixers Cavs uh, in a couple weeks Ooh. here in 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 the city. I I can't wait for that. So okay. maybe we'll check in after that one. Yeah, absolutely, brother. Thank you for having me. All right, that's going to do it for episode two of the podcast. Uh, I didn't get any promo stuff in from Will, so on his behest, I will say follow him on Twitter at SendSpud, Instagram at WillSennit, and listen to his podcast. He does a closer look with Nate Fisher, who will also come on this show at some point soon. So listen to a closer look. Go check out the Bleeding Edge screening series in Toronto. Uh, Listen to Morrissey. Go Bengals. Watch basketball. See you next week. And uh, listen to Extended Clip, too, my other podcast.